look at, at heaven and worship with the idea that if we can get some pictures, accurate pictures of heaven, it will influence the way we worship on earth. And um, we're going to do that. We're gonna, I'm going to read to you a long chapter, the second to last chapter of the Bible. I'm going to read to you Revelations 21. We're going to talk about some of what we see about heaven and how that can influence our worship. Then we're going to try to very briefly experience part of a worship service that we know takes place in heaven because we've got the script for it in Revelation 5. And we're going to read scripture in five different languages as an expression of every tribe and every language and every people group and every ethnicity being part of the worshiper or being among the worshipers in heaven. And then we're going to conclude with the Lord's Supper. And we usually think of the Lord's Supper as looking backwards as we should to remember Christ. The Lord's Supper also looks forward to what Revelations calls the wedding feast of the Lamb. And as, we, um, as we're going to look at heaven, though, we've got to settle kind of one important kind of truth. And that is, we can't get heaven inside our heads. We are, are finite, we are mortal, and if we try to get heaven inside of our heads, it's just going to go poof, we can't do it. G.K. Chesterton is a Christian writer from the last century, and he had a really kind of a a skill at, at turning phrases and words. And here's what he said. He said, the poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It's the logician who seeks to get the heaven into his head, and it is his head that splits. So our goal is not to somehow get the heaven into our heads. The goal is to somehow rise up and get our head into the heavens so that we can get glimpses of what eternity is like so that it shapes the way we live on earth. All right, I have to confess a few things to you. I am not the best person to preach this sermon to you for three reasons. Number one, I've not for very much of my life particularly cared about going to heaven. I'll explain that in just a minute. The second one's worse I'm not particularly drawn to worship. Some of you are wondering, why is he a pastor? I'm not particularly drawn to worship, at least the way that it's been expressed and talked about in most of my life in the church. And thirdly, I'm not a great person to talk about this theme because I have seldom dared to think that my greatest longing would one day or could one day be fulfilled which is kind of what heaven is all about. So I'm going to walk you through each of those um, points of that confession. And and I'm not making any of those up. Those are actually really true. So maybe you don't want to listen to the sermon, or maybe somebody else should um, talk to you about heaven. Um, But I remember as a kid, I read through through Revelations. I mean, I read through, Isaiah's got this picture of heaven in Isaiah chapter 6. Some of the prophets give us pictures of heaven, like Ezekiel. You listen to the words of Jesus about heaven. You listen to the Apostle Paul and then the Apostle John who wrote the, the scripture we're going to read. And I remember reading that as a kid. And, you know, I'd grown up in the church, and I, I believed the scriptures. So I never wondered whether heaven was real. That was sort of established for me. What wasn't established was that heaven isn't just real, but heaven is reality itself. So let me read to you the scripture. Did we get up? Are we up yet, Eric? Okay. Let me read to you Revelations chapter 21, a long scripture, 
but I want to read it slowly. If you want to, close your eyes and even try to picture what, what um, John is trying to describe in the vision that he had of the new heavens and the new earth. So, um, and uh, it's four slides or something like that, so it's going to take a few moments. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, referenced to earlier in the book of, of Revelation, one of the seven angels came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Try to picture this. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. If you saw this in your picture Bibles as children, you probably saw a cube of gold that was, um, that was in, in, the, um, in this passage of, of Revelations. The angel measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia, about 1,400 miles in length, and as wide 
and as high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits, which is about 200 feet thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire, so picture blue. The third, agate. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, onyx. The sixth, ruby. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, turquoise. The eleventh, jacinth and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great city, the great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So my problem when I was a kid, and I'm still kind of a kid, so I still have part of this problem, is I kind of thought, I don't want Jesus to come back too soon and mess up my life on earth, right? I didn't want heaven to interrupt the good things that I was doing. And so, um, you know, I wanted to get married. I wanted to have sex. I wanted to have children. I didn't want Jesus to come back. And it wasn't until I realized that heaven wasn't just real, but is actually a different order of magnitude of reality than anything we can imagine. It wasn't until I realized that, that I started to realize that, that heaven is going to be so much more glorious than life on earth that I was settling for far too little. Heaven isn't just someplace out there beyond the, the furthest galaxy. Heaven's a different order altogether. It is the truest reality behind and beneath and around and above all that is creation, all that we know. Heaven is a truer reality behind all of that. So that the life that we know and the world we know is like a, an echo of a glorious singing voice. Heaven is, is just this... I mean, you read it in the description, right? The description's too specific. And it, it's brilliant. And it's solid. Heaven isn't just a state of mind. Heaven is a different order of reality. The book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews understood this. So throughout the book of Hebrews, he keeps making this reference to heaven being the, the original, and on earth we have these copies. So the tabernacle that the Israelites worshipped in in the desert 
was a copy of the true tabernacle that it was in heaven. And so the writer of Hebrews says, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is not part of this creation. So the phrase there, the greater and more perfect, that's a description of heaven. Greater and more perfect. Hebrews 9.24 continues, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself to appear for us in God's glory. Hebrews 10 says that the law is just a shadow of the real thing. It's still real, but in comparison to, to the, the significance of heaven and eternity in the presence of God, it's a mere shadow. And so Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall of fame, hall of faith of fame of the of followers of God, we read that they were looking for a better city. They were looking for something more glorious. Brothers and sisters, heaven is not just real. It is reality itself. Um, C.S. Lewis helps me in so many ways understand eternity. Um, I'll give you a couple quotes in this message. But in his book called The Great Divorce, he, I love how he pictures that those who are furthest from heaven become like phantoms or ghosts. They're like wisps because they're less and less real. And then in The Great Divorce, the closer the people and the closer you get to the reality of heaven, even the grass, for those who are, are kind of phantoms, the grass is too pointed and too too sharp and too real for them to walk on. And the beings in eternity have a substance and a weight and a significance because they are closer to reality itself. So I came to realize my desires for life on this earth weren't too strong. They were too weak. And C.S. Lewis, in, a, in an essay called The Weight of Glory, says it this way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires for this life not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. When I get that glimpse of the reality and the brilliant glory of eternity, then I'm ready, when the Lord says it's time, to meet him in glory. And we will begin the, the life that is truest life, the life that is, is going to be more satisfying than we can even dare to imagine here. This life matters, but it's just merely the introduction to what God has for us. All right, how does that affect our worship on earth? Realizing that heaven is reality itself attracts us to worship on earth as an anticipation of the brilliant splendor in heaven. Worship on earth is an anticipation of the brilliant splendor of heaven, which is why when we, whether we're together and singing or whether we're alone in solitude with God or whether with our family or our small group, that's why sometimes worship transports us because we, we start to break down the barrier between time and eternity as we start to have taste of the glory of heaven. 
All right, my second confession is that I am not particularly drawn to worship. And there's probably therapy for it. I should probably get a spiritual director to fix that. But it is really true. And there are a couple of reasons. It doesn't help that I'm an introvert. So I connect with God way better when I'm all by myself than I'm with you guys. When I'm with you guys, basically, you distract me from God, okay? So I showed up with lots of people, even if it's just a small group. It's a step down from just kind of being alone with God. So that doesn't help. It also doesn't help that, um, that um, I'm not really a music person. There was music in my family. My mom played piano and my dad did trumpet. I played French horn in, in high school and, and, and in college and for the symphony in Wheaton for a while. Um, but I'm not really a music guy. And so much of worship in my lifetime has revolved around music. So when I'm driving by myself in the car, the radio is hardly ever on. You know, if I turn it on, I can put up with whatever music is going on for like three minutes, and I'd rather be by myself and I push it off. So it doesn't help that I'm a music guy, and too much of the church has reduced worship to music. And we don't like to admit it, but a whole bunch of you are right there with me. All right? I'm not going to make you raise your hands, but you know who you are, that the music just doesn't grip you. Um, it also doesn't help that so much Christian music is boring. Even the really good stuff, we sing it so much that it's boring. And I was with somebody this week, uh, Kevin, you, you'll be with me on this one. I was with somebody this week who said, why don't we sing good Christian hip-hop music in church? Why don't we get some... And, and then you guys, at least you guys didn't grow up when I did, back when we had organs and pianos. And there were times when worship, when I was a kid, it sounded like somebody died. And you're singing about the glories of God. And it's... So it doesn't help. That, and by the way, those of you who are creative musicians, please bring us a new generation of songs and a diversity of songs. And those of you who are creative in other ways, in visual arts and drama, give us other elements of worship. Worship in the Old Testament is so rich, with so much drama, with so much going on. And showing up and singing, and I'm not picking on our worship people. By the way, <laughs> worship here at Cornerstone for me has been better than worship in any other church in my life, okay? So just get that out of the way. But are any of you, you don't have to raise your hands, some of you like me are tired of coming and singing three songs, hearing a talking head, and then singing two songs and then going home. Worship has to be more than that. The idea of heaven as an eternal church service just gives me the creeps. I gotta move around more. I gotta have more interactions. I gotta explore things. I can't stand that idea of an eternal worship service. And then finally, it doesn't help. So much of the talk about worship in my lifetime has been worship is a command. You have to glorify God. When the Bible says that, I, I get that. Um, but somehow, too often worship sermons, and I've preached some of them, they sound like God is like this needy person up in heaven who needs to have all this glory given to him all the time. And if we don't do it, then, you know, poor God's going to be up there all by himself, shriveling up. And that's not what we see when we get glimpses of God in eternity. Um, Revelation 21 is a display of God's glory and splendor in a way that that we don't have to tell anybody in heaven, oh, you ought to be worshiping, you ought to be praising God now. There is such a display of God's glory and splendor that you can't not praise God 
in eternity. You can't help yourself. You don't have to drum it up. You don't have to be obedient. But it comes out of you like, like, like when you see the northern lights. All right? When you see the northern lights... Um, and I remember as a kid at one point, I, um, I was, we were way up north in Canada to see the Northern Lights. We were camping. My dad said, so I was probably 10, my dad said, everybody come out. And I stepped out, and there was a display of this color. And, and it wasn't just like over there. It was all around these dancing lights. I really did as a 10-year-old kid. I thought, dang, Jesus is coming back. I'm not going to get to have sex. Um, <laughs> But when you experience that, you don't, you don't think, yeah, I'm going to turn in early. You, you get caught up in it, and you appreciate it, and you, you experience it for as long as you possibly can. Revelation chapter uh, 21, 2 talks about how the new, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new, York, new earth coming down from God were like a beautiful bride, beautifully adorned for her husband. I'm pretty sure that none of you have ever been to a wedding. You know, the music starts, everybody stands up, looks down the aisle for the bride, and I'm pretty sure none of you ever looked and went, eh, and then sat back down, right? You get caught up in the beauty. And then in verse 5 of Revelation 21, God says, I am making everything new. No pain, no mourning. No tears, no depression, no anxiety, no striving, no impurity within you that messes you up. In eternity, God has made everything new. One commentator says the overall picture is of a city of brilliant gold surrounded by a wall, inlaid with jasper and resting on 12 foundations, adorned with precious gems of every color and hue, The city is magnificent beyond description. The eternal dwelling place of God. When you're in that kind of glory, you don't have to try to remind yourself to praise God. It it rises irresistibly out of you. So thank God that, that heaven is not an eternal church service. We will explore the new heavens and the new earth. We will have love to receive and love to give. We will have spiritual gifts and spiritual fruit to continue to nurture. We will, as a reversal of Eden, we will have creation care that is given to us to to significantly steward the new heavens and the new earth. And Revelation 21, verse 11 just simply says that, that the new heavens and earth will shine with the glory of God. And its brilliance will be clear as crystal. So how does this glimpse of heaven shape how we worship on earth? I think appreciation of worship in heaven can infuse our worship here with an irresistible adoration. Not all the time, but sometimes you will blur the distinctions between time and eternity as you worship the Most High God in all of his glory and all of his brilliance and all of his splendor. My third confession. And this was interesting. The first two I've known for a long time. But in, in kind of trying to immerse in Revelations this week, I realized that I get scared of thinking that my greatest longings will ever really be satisfied. So think for a moment. 
What is your deepest longing? What do you hope your existence will somehow accomplish or birth for you? And this isn't superficial stuff like a job or, or a husband or a wife or a house. This is behind all of that. When you're quiet and when you reflect, what do you really, really long for and hope for out of this life? Think just for a moment. What is it for you? That all the other things can go away, but this one thing you really, really, really hope you will experience or find. Again, C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, he says... We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. He says, we want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. And this is the Christian doctrine that reminds us that in eternity, not only will we glorify God, but God will give glory to us. Think about that. The Most High God, creator of the universe, will give glory to you. And I don't know what you answer for that. My longing, if I peel everything back, I really hope that I will be adored by my creator. I long for his affirmation. I long for his perfect and complete love that then will strengthen me to be everything that I'm called to be. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that all who behold the glory of the Lord, think about that, all who behold the glory of the Lord are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Not only will God glorify you in eternity, but he will give you a glory that increases and increases and increases and never stops increasing further up and farther in for all of eternity. Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus always intended to bring many sons and glories, uh, sons and daughters into glory. And then 2 Corinthians 4, where where C.S. Lewis got that phrase, the weight of glory for his essay, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, 18 says that our, our momentary struggles and trials in this life are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. There is an eternal weight of glory that is available to you who have followed Jesus Christ. And when you come to eternity, God's not just going to put up with you. He's going to rejoice in you. He is going to be thrilled with you. He is going to, Zechariah says, he is going to sing songs about you. Can you imagine the creator of the spheres singing songs? that glorify you, it's almost too much to even imagine. So again, C.S. Lewis, the promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible, 
and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really choose, shall find approval and shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, and a father in his child. It seems almost impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. I want to dare to dream more of that kind of glory. I want to, the, the fear is what if we don't get it, right? That's the doubt side of it. But I want to have the courage to long for all of that in eternity. And so Revelations 21, verses 6 and 7, Jesus says this, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, Jesus says. I will be their God. They will be my children. So how does this, this longing, this deep longing and hope that it will be satisfied completely in heaven, how does that affect our worship on earth? It brings to our worship, again, whether we are together like this, whether we're alone by ourselves, whether we're with our family, whether we're with a small group and friends, it brings to our worship a yearning expectancy. Really glorious worship, in a sense, in this earth, doesn't quite satisfy, does it? There's always a little bit more. There's always something else. There is a yearning expectancy for the fullness of the glory that God has for his people. So summary, knowing heaven is not just real, but is reality itself attracts us to worship on earth as a foretaste of the brilliant splendor in heaven. Knowing that heaven's utter glory will irresistibly elicit our complete adoration from deep within us infuses our worship on earth with wonder. And knowing that in heaven our deepest desire to be adored will be fully satisfied fills our worship on earth with yearning expectancy. So before we celebrate the Lord's table this morning, we actually wanted to see if we could kind of almost hear some of worship in heaven to experience it. Again, get our heads into the heavens, not the heaven into our heads. And so I'd like to ask the scripture readers to come forward. And we're going to read a scripture of a worship service because we actually have a worship um, flow in Revelations chapter 5. And we want to read it in six different languages, different portions of it. So Revelations chapter 5, an experience of worship in heaven. And when Christ had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp 
and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and ethnicity. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Engkau layak mengambil kitab itu dan memecahkan segel-segelnya, sebab engkau sudah dibunuh, dan dengan darahmu manusia dari segala suku, bahasa, negara, dan bangsa sudah dibeli olehmu untuk Allah. Engkau sudah menjadikan mereka suatu bangsa dan imam-imam supaya mereka melayani Allah kita dan memerintah di atas bumi. Cekel gajishiku ke inbongul tegiye habdang hasidoda. Ilcik jugimul dangasa kak joksokwa, bangonwa, teksongwa, nara gaundeso saramdere piro saso hananimke dirishiku. Joiro uri hananim apeso nara wa jesajangul samushasini. E eles cantavam um cântico novo. Tu és digno de receber o livro e de abrir os seus selos, pois foste mesmo morto e com teu sangue compraste para Deus gente de todo livro, língua e povo e nação. Tu os constituíste reino e sacerdotes para o nosso Deus, e eles reinarão sobre a terra. Then, then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. L'agneau qui a été immolé est digne de recevoir la puissance, la richesse, la sagesse, la force, l'honneur, la gloire et la louange. Boazlamish Kuzuguju, Zenginli, Bigeli, Kurleti, Saiguyu, Yujeli, Uvguyu, Amaya Lighter. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Bagi dia yang duduk di atas takta dan bagi anak domba adalah puji-pujian dan hormat dan kemuliaan dan kuasa sampai selama-lamanya. Pujaya anjishin iwa orin yang ege chansong wa chongi wa yonggwang wa dengyogul Aquele que está sentado no trono e ao Cordeiro seja um louvor, a honra, a glória e o poder para sempre e todo, para todo sempre. A celui que assis sur le trono e l'agneau, soit la louange, l'honneur, la gloire e la força au siècle des siècles. Övgü, saygı, yücelik ve güç, sonsuz laradek takta oturanın ve kuzunun olsun. I hope you just hear some of how Babel will be reversed and how on the day of Pentecost we don't all go back to one language because there's such glory in every language and every ethnic group. It won't be flattened out so that everything's the same. But in eternity, we will, like on the day of Pentecost, 
hear one another's languages and mother tongues, and we will all understand everyone. So would you rise with me? And I just want to repeat the last verse of this, um, of this passage. And we'll read it together once, and that'll give us our rhythm, and we'll do the second time. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Again, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated.